Strasvici. Welcome to episode 11 of City Break St. Petersburg, entitled The Siege of Leningrad. I want to talk about the terrible 900 days during World War II when the city of Leningrad was surrounded by the Germans who had vowed to starve it into submission. We're talking about the worst phase, the winter period 1941 to 1942, when people were battling freezing weather on the most meagre of rations. At the worst stage, workers were entitled to 425 grams of bread a day. Everybody else got less and there was nothing else, but really nothing else to eat. So in this episode, plan to talk a little bit about the history, what actually happened and when, and then feature the diary of a very young writer, a girl who was 15 at the time, called Lena Mukina, who kept a diary throughout that awful winter from which we can learn lots of details, many gruesome details, about what it was actually like. I'm going to talk a little bit about arts in the city during that period. You may have heard of the famous Shostakovich concert that was played. There are one or two other interesting things that I read about that I'm going to add into that section. And then finally, I want to talk about the monument which is just outside the city, called the Monument to the Heroic Defenders of Leningrad, which was built about 30 years after the war, in memory of those who died and those who managed to survive. There's so much to see in St Petersburg, but for me, the visit to that monument really was one of the things I will truly never forget. So then, the history. If we go back to the summer of 1941, Hitler had actually made a non-aggression pact with Stalin, but it didn't last he had decided to break it and orders went out for Operation Nordlicht, which means Operation Northern Lights in German. And German troops were ordered to raise the city of Leningrad to the ground to do that via a daily bombing campaign, coupled with surrounding the city and making sure no food got in. It wasn't something that evolved, it was absolutely planned from the start. So there's a directive written on the 29th of September 1941, to German naval command, which reads as follows. The intention is to circle the city and level it to the ground by means of artillery fire, using shells of all calibre and continual aerial bombardment. Any requests for surrender will be categorically rejected, since the problem of maintaining and feeding the population cannot and should not be solved by us. We have no interest in saving any part of the civilian population of this large city. And the results were truly terrible. Here's an explanation from a book called Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, by Anna Reid. Immediately pre-war, the city had a population of just over 3 million. In the 12 weeks to mid-September 1941, when the German and Finnish armies cut it off from the rest of the Soviet Union, about half a million Leningraders were drafted or evacuated, leaving just over two and a half million civilians, at least 400,000 of them children, trapped within the city. Hunger set in almost immediately, and in October, police began to report the appearance of emaciated corpses on the streets. Deaths quadrupled in December, peaking in January and February at 100,000 per month. By the end of what was even by Russian standards a savage winter, on some days temperatures dropped to minus 30 degrees, cold and hunger had taken somewhere around half a million lives. All the supply lines into the city were cut off, and so things were really impossibly difficult. Dmitry Pavlov was appointed to be chief of food supply, and he ran teams who ransacked through all the houses and buildings they could find, searching in cupboards, tearing up floorboards looking for any food they could find. 
scientists were commissioned to see what they could do. Could they make something edible out of yeast or glue or soap? Pets got eaten and the very strictest rationing system was introduced. The workers were given 425 grams of bread a day. Everybody else got less. It wasn't enough for anybody. And anyone found violating the system was shot. So people were relentlessly hungry. Disease spread and many, many people died. It wasn't unusual to see corpses in the streets. Mass graves had to be dug. And by the end of that first winter, at least half a million people had died. The siege continued for another two years, but fewer people died, partly because there were fewer left, and also because eventually they managed to get a delivery route to bring food from Lake Lagoda into the city. But nevertheless, by the time the siege finally came to an end in 1944, it was estimated that about 800,000 people had lost their lives. After some 900 days of the siege, the Red Army finally arrived. The Germans, of course, were losing on several fronts by this time. And the Red Army arrived and it's said that they used more rockets and shells to defeat the Germans in Leningrad than they had actually been used at Stalingrad. But in the end, they prevailed and the city was liberated. One of the most graphic accounts that we have is left to us by a girl called Lena Mukina. I think of her really as a Russian Anne Frank. She was aged 15 when the siege began and she kept a diary starting before it began and going on right the way through it from which we can learn many details. It was published in English by Pan Books in 2016. So to tell you a little bit about her, her proper name was Elena Vladimirovna Mukina and she was born in Leningrad, I think, in 1924. And in 1941, in the summer, she began her diary, and it's heart-rendingly normal to start with. It's all about school and tests that she had to do, and her friends, and the fact that she loved a boy in her class called Vova, and was totally in despair when, as she put it, it's all over. And uh, she writes about him, quote, I will remember you for the rest of my life. I can't help loving you. But it's quite amusing to note that later on in that day, the second entry reads like this, quote, Goodness, I feel quite unsettled. But is he really worth it? There will be other boys. There are better boys than Vova in our class. Vova Friedman, for example, and Genia K. On June the 5th, 1941, the entry reads simply, quote, The holidays have begun. Hello, freedom. Already by July, though, she's writing about noticing that Nevsky Prospect is filling up with troops and camouflage lorries carrying equipment and ammunition. She begins describing the air raids, talking about incendiary bombs falling, buildings burning all over the city, the destruction that she saw. She was beginning to see people being killed. And what she was actually doing, she was on holiday, but in fact the older school children were all dragooned in to help so she spent a lot of days doing things like clearing rubble or working in a hospital wing. One evening she looked out of the window at the hospital and wrote the following about what she saw. Little green stars, pieces of phosphorus, were falling from the roof. She begins to describe then how in the autumn the cold set in of course and so did the hunger. So she writes for example, the harsh winter has begun, it's freezing outside, it's cold inside too because we can't afford to waste firewood, so we only light the stove to prepare supper. She goes on to talk about how hard it is when school goes back in the autumn to study there because it was so freezing cold, no heating, and she, for example, a little detail she gives was it, the inkwells had all frozen up. She talks about the daily food ration, and quite understandably, she begins to fantasise about food. 
dreaming about how much better everything will be when the war ends and everything's back to normal. So she writes, for example, I'm going to buy a kilo of black bread, a kilo of gingerbread and half a litre of cottonseed oil. I'll crumble the bread and the gingerbread, then pour plenty of oil over the top and mash it all together. Then I'll fetch a tablespoon and take great pleasure in eating my fill. And she goes on to think about all the things that she and her mum, Mama as she calls her, will be able to cook. So they'll be baking pies and she lists all the different ones. There's going to be meat and potato and cabbage pies. She's going to put grated carrots in some. She thinks about how they'll fry potatoes and eat them straight out of the frying pan. Golden and sizzling, as she puts it. And she lists lots of other things that she's looking forward to. Noodles, macaroni with tomato sauce, fried onions, warm crusty white bread. She writes also, quote, The salami will have to be thick enough to really sink your teeth into it when you take a bite. And then, quote, Finally, we will eat hot buttery blinchiki with jam and fat fluffy oladi. Dear God, we're going to eat so much we'll frighten ourselves. She explains that, as so many other people did, when their cat died... They didn't think twice about eating it, and she comments that she had never thought that cat meat would be so tender and tasty. She writes, quote, He fed us for ten days. Our cat kept us alive for a whole ten-day period. It seems that however bad things get, there's always something worse in the next chapter. So in January 1942, having written movingly in December about how little they had to eat and how they were eking everything out and eventually getting down to really not much more than bread... In January, even the bread gets short. And this is how she opens the chapter talking about that. Quote, Nothing remains for us but to lie down and die. It's getting worse and worse every day. The only thing keeping us alive lately has been bread. We've never been denied bread. I mean, up until now, bread has always been available. We've never had to wait at the bread shop for it to be delivered. But it's already 11 o'clock and there's no bread in any of the bread shops. And no one knows when it will arrive. Stumbling and staggering, Hungry people have been scouring the bread shops since seven o'clock this morning, but alas, everywhere they have found nothing but empty shelves. Not long after that, that the elderly lady who lives with them dies, and again, in common with so many other people, there was nothing they could do about it. They needed a death certificate signed, because people doing that were so busy, nobody came for a few days, so the old lady's body was just kept in the kitchen, just lying there, and they had to move round it whenever they were going anywhere. And then eventually, when the paperwork was done, they had to load her body onto a sledge and drag it through the snowy streets to the Semenovsky Hippodrome, which had been turned into a makeshift mortuary, meeting, of course, on the way, lots of other people doing the same. Things get so desperate that they'll just do absolutely anything to get something that they can eat. There's a section where she takes a little, cuts a little bit off her school satchel every few days and just sucks the leather as she's trying to get to sleep at night in bed, because it gives her some sustenance. And people, of course, are swapping ideas and trying to think of ways to get round all these terrible problems. And from her aunt Sasha, she gets the news that it's apparently possible to make what they called meat jelly out of good quality carpenter's glue. Aunt Sasha shows them how to do it, and gives them a sheet of the glue, so they could try it themselves. So... Lena's mother boiled some water and put the sheet of glue into it and boiled it up again and poured it into bowls. Then they left it on the windowsill overnight to set. They actually got up early, so keen were they to see how it had turned out. So at six o'clock in the morning, there they were. And as Lena writes, we were astonished to find that our jelly was ready. 
she writes about it, quote, we both liked it. I really liked it. And she talks about that it's really not as bad as it might sound. And actually, it's quite nutritious. As she puts it, quote, good quality carpenter's glue is made from the hooves and horns of various animals. And of course, some people buy the legs of young animals with the hooves attached specifically in order to make casseroles and meat jelly. Using this method, Mama and I will have a ready supply of extra food without using up any of our coupons. Then they start experimenting and they realise that if they can find a little bit of fruit puree, for example, and mix that in with the jelly, then they can make it flavoured. And actually, if they put a bit more fruit puree in, then they can make a thicker jelly, which they can leave to set and then cut into little cubes, which they call jelly sweets, which they can eat one a day when they're drinking their tea or hot water. It's very sad to read how much of a lift this gives her because things are so terrible that really the smallest thing that might make something better seems marvellous. I'm sure, she writes, we'll think up other possibilities once we start experimenting. If Mama brings rissoles today, for example, we're going to make jellied meat. We'll chop the rissoles into smaller pieces and boil them in the glue and this will make a jelly that not only tastes of real meat but actually has pieces of meat in it. I'm so glad that we worked out how to use this glue. I think it will help to make us stronger, particularly Mama. But the very next month, on the 8th of February 1942, there's just a single line entry for that day which reads, Mama died yesterday morning, I am all alone. The second half of the book is punctuated with the deaths of neighbours and friends until really you wonder if anybody's going to survive. But in fact, the wonder of it is that Lena did survive She went on to live until the age of 67. She died in Moscow in 1991. We know a little bit about what happened to her after she finally was able to leave the city. She trained at the Leningrad School of Art first, and then she got various jobs in the flour milling industry and at a power station. And then she worked for something called the Konsevo Mechanical Works, where she worked in what was called the Artistic Haberdashery Department, designing fabrics. And although all of that is very good to know, your overriding memory of the book becomes, I think, just the people dropping off one by one, people that she knew. And some of the descriptions that she wrote of people trudging through freezing cold weather with a body on a sledge, say, too tired to walk, really, and having to stop at every corner and take a rest and stir themselves up to get a little further, and knowing that so many of those people just did literally drop dead in the street of cold and hunger. There's also some interesting material on the way that the city's artists responded to this terrible event because attempts were made to maintain some kind of cultural life in the city, unlikely though that sounds. In the City Pick anthology for St Petersburg, I found an extract from a novel called The Life of an Unknown Man by a writer called Andrei Makini. And the extract that was chosen is about the main character, Volsky, who I think had connections to the theatre, getting involved with the theatre in Leningrad during the siege. So he's walking past one day, and he meets somebody breaking up wood outside and gets talking, tells the man that he himself has been to the conservatoire and is invited to come in and help. He seems quite surprised to be asked, but then the manager of the theatre, with whom he's talking, says, quote, We need voices. His eyes met Volsky's. In truth, voices were all that they had left. And he describes how the character is taken into the theatre then and given all sorts of little jobs to do, putting up scenery and helping with the wardrobe. And all the helpers are being asked to have walk-on parts in the evening. And as the writer puts it, 
Volsky believed that by engaging an excess of walk-on actors, the director was seeking to encourage them. But after several performances, he realised that this casting related to the frequency with which the actors died. By taking part in the show, the walk-ons were learning all the roles and could thus take over from anyone who, one day, did not return. goes on to describe performances that are done by candlelight in a freezing cold auditorium where it might be minus 10, how the show would often be interrupted by an air raid siren, after which some people would go down to the basement, but there would be others who just didn't have the strength to get up and move and would just stay huddled in their seats, listening to the sounds of the bombing and presumably hoping that they were going to be, in inverted commas, lucky again. He makes the point that applause was no longer heard, that being because people were too weak to clap and also their hands were frozen inside their mittens. You really get a picture of people for whom the idea of keeping some kind of artistic endeavour going, even in these terrible circumstances, was just so important that they would put everything into achieving it. And then there's the story of Shostakovich and the symphony which he wrote during the siege, which was performed in August 1942 and became seen as a sort of triumph of defiance against the odds that they put on this magnificent concert in such difficult circumstances. It became known eventually as the Leningrad Symphony. So at the time, Shostakovich was 35 years old and he was the head of the Leningrad Conservatoire's piano department. He was working on his seventh symphony in summer 1941, just as the siege was beginning, and he left the city. He was evacuated to Moscow, where he finished writing the work. He didn't make any allowances for the fact that everything was difficult, so it was very long, 78 minutes. It needed a huge orchestra, eight horns, six trombones, two harps, etc., etc., and although the hope was to perform it in Leningrad, it was performed first in Moscow and on the BBC and in America, but then eventually it was decided that it would be performed in Leningrad. The problem being, of course, that the orchestra, the Leningrad Radio Orchestra, had had to shut down. A lot of their players were dead or too sick to play. But the conductor, Karl Elias Berg, decided that he would take this project on, so he recalled as many musicians as he could muster for a rehearsal. Fifteen musicians turned up on the first day, and they had so little energy that the rehearsal only lasted 15 minutes. But they didn't give up. The Soviet authorities sent an order down the battle lines, ordering musicians to come and report for rehearsal, so men would come between bouts of fighting and rehearse. The conductor imposed strict discipline, so he said, for example, that anybody who was late to rehearsal or performed badly would have their rations cut, even if in some cases their excuse or their reason was that they had been delayed burying a member of their family, but that wasn't deemed to be a good enough excuse. And the result was that, improbable, almost impossible though it sounds, eventually an orchestra was got together, they did manage to rehearse enough to be able to play the symphony, and eventually a performance day was announced, 9th of August 1942. By the time they came to play the symphony, the orchestra apparently had only played it all the way through once, but nevertheless they were going to go on and do it. There's a fictional treatment of this in a book called The Conductor by Sarah Quigley, which was published in 2011. She describes the conductor as follows, quote, He brought down his baton. The musicians stirred, seeming ready to play, but nothing happened. It was as if, moving as one body, 
they were paralysed from nerves, fear or extreme fatigue. And she goes on to describe him ordering people to raise up their instruments and telling them it was their duty to try and play. And here's a fictional description then of how one of the early rehearsals went. Quote, He'd heard the first chords of the symphony so many times, playing them out in his imagination as he lay in bed, clutching his coat around him. The reality was completely different. A few straggling chords, the inadequate rattle of a snare drum, a tiny tapping of bows on strings. It was a smell of food without taste, or the promise of sustenance without delivery. He was grasping at thin air. He rapped on his music stand, and the musicians struggled to a halt. Already the mouths of the woodwind and brass players were reddened, their scabby lips bleeding. Some of the faces raised to Elias had the white-green tinge of the dead. Then, as he watched, the lead flautist slid out of his chair and onto the floor. What shall we do with him? The second flautist knelt beside the collapsed man, calling his name in a voice high with fear. Take him outside, lay him in the corridor, cover him with a coat. Was the flautist alive or dead? He had no idea and no energy to find out. As the chapter progresses, he just concentrates on trying to get the rehearsal to be a little bit better. And I don't think you do ever find out what actually happened to the flautist, although I imagine we're left feeling that he must have died. Historians tell us that on the day of the concert, the Soviet army bombed the German army very badly, went up and down the lines, because they wanted to silence the guns so that they wouldn't interrupt the concert. Loudspeakers were set up throughout the city so that the performance would be heard by people living in all the corners of it and also, of course, by the German troops just outside. There was one member of the audience, Olga Kvader, who lived into her 90s and was able to talk about the event. She talks about how she went on a day not long after her father and grandfather had both died, presumably of hunger, but she went to the concert and says about it that, quote, the chandeliers were sparkling. It was such a strange feeling. On the one hand, it couldn't be possible. The blockade, burials, deaths, starvation. It was just incredible. She talks about how they feared that the Germans would start bombing in the middle of the concert and how she remembers thinking, please God, just let us listen to the end. And she points out that although everybody who came to play was starving, literally, nevertheless, they were all wearing bow ties. So they'd done what they could to look like a proper orchestra. And she says that at the time it made her think of her father because he had loved music. And she and he had been to the Philharmonic Hall in Leningrad and listened to concerts. And she felt that somehow he was there listening along to this as well. A few years later, in the 1950s, the conductor had a visit from a group of East German tourists who told him that they had been stationed outside Leningrad on the day of the concert and remembered listening to it. They told him that they too had been very hungry and very frightened and hadn't really wanted to be there at all. They were doing it because they had to. And they told him that they'd realised at the time as they were listening to the music that a city of people who showed such spirit were not going to capitulate. So they began to realise that actually they never would take over Leningrad completely. The symphony was played again in London quite recently. I think it was in 2017. And the man conducting it on that occasion, Russian, with a hard to pronounce name, I think it's Bishkov, said at the time he's quoted on the BBC website about the concert as saying, quote, Here were people representing the opposing side of the war who needed music just as badly as the ones for whom it was composed. 
because in the end it was composed for humanity. And the best proof is that today we still need it. We are still listening to it. And to finish then, I'd just like to mention the monument called the Monument to the Heroic Defenders of Leningrad, which is on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. It's quite near a tube station called the Moskovskaya Metro. So you probably find it on a map if you know that. And I think it really is worth a visit. It was built in 1975 and it consists of a massive obelisk, 48 metres high, made of red granite, which is circled by a sort of concrete fence, which is there to symbolise the grip that the siege had on the city. And there are groups of statues around this enclosure, groups of soldiers, groups of civilians. There's a very moving statue of grieving mothers hearing that their sons are not coming home. And that's the top layer, but there's an underground level as well. You can go inside the memorial, down to the memorial hall, down some steps, and you find a massive, almost empty hall with a heartbeat music playing through it. I think it's done with a metronome, and the reason for that is that it echoes the only sound that the radio made in Leningrad during wartime, unless it was interrupted for emergency announcements. That was all that was played, and it's quite a dark room. It's lit by 900 orange sodium lamps, 900 being the number, of course, of days that the siege actually lasted. So for every lamp that you see down there, you know, that was yet another day of these terribly difficult circumstances. There are some mosaics on the walls. There's one of a group of women greeting their menfolk home from war, for example. And there are display cases in which you can see some documentation and various memorabilia. So the thing I noticed most was they had a piece of bread that represented the day's ration, which you look at and it's tiny. It's really very poignant. Um, And in one of the other cases, they had the violin that Shostakovich himself used to play. So it's a very good place to just think about what happened and, and to remember all those people whose lives were shattered. St. Petersburg's a splendid city in so many ways, But there's also no shortage of dark moments to remember, often involving the deaths of large numbers of people, such as the workers, for example, who died building it under the brutal terror of Peter the Great, for example. But what's so moving about the siege, I think, is that it's really something that happened not that long ago and for which people, even today, who lived through it are still alive. And that makes it seem very real. That's why I think everybody should go. Okay, so that's the end of today's episode then. Just remains for me to sign off in a minute. But before I do that, just to tell you that I'm planning for the next episode something much lighter in tone. I thought we'd have a look at the musical side of the city. I might call the episode Music and Theatre, I think. Let's look at what people across the three centuries that the city has been there did for entertainment. There's, of course, no shortage of very famous composers connected with St. Petersburg. So we'll have a look at a few of those a look at some of the concert halls and a little look at some of the things that have happened in the theatre there over the centuries. But for today, I'm just going to sign out, thanking you very much for listening, spasibo, and wishing you goodbye in the best Russian I can muster, dosvidanya. <laughs>